This is Ari Koretsky, and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. Have I mentioned dailygiving.org yet? If you've been listening the last couple of weeks, you will already be familiar with this incredible opportunity to optimize your charitable giving, to exercise your giving muscles every single day for only $1. $1 a day, you get pulled in with thousands of people from around the world who all care so much about the Jewish people and the world at large and want to leverage their dollars to give to incredible causes that have been pre-checked, vetted, identified by a professional team and making an amazing impact every single day. Dailygiving.org. Please sign up right this moment. You will not regret it. Meanwhile, a reminder as always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Subscribe wherever you may be listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google. Please share this podcast with your friends and family some of whom might not even know how to listen to a podcast. You can be the one to introduce them. Emails, comments, questions, Jews, you should know at gmail.com. This week, an incredible, poignant, raw conversation with Daniel Shapiro. Dan is a longtime attorney and went through some incredibly trying life circumstances. His wife, many years, high school sweetheart, was afflicted with terrible illness. He became a long-term caregiver, and ended up writing a memoir about his experiences at the Thin Ledge. I would urge you to add this to your summer reading list. It's an incredible, touching account, but also very real, no holds barred, and deals with the realities of human limitation, human frailty. And so I am thrilled to present my conversation with Daniel Shapiro. We are here with Daniel Shapiro, author of The Thin Ledge, a husband's memoir of love, trauma, and unexpected circumstances. That is a mouthful and, and certainly seems to describe a very significant and perhaps sobering journey, but one that I believe is replete with a great deal of life wisdom and uh, guidance for others dealing with challenging situations. But how are you, Daniel? Good. Good. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Great to speak with you. Let's just take it from the top and tell us a little bit about where you're from. I think uh, listeners will detect the Midwestern lilt. Funny enough, I actually had uh, my last guest, Chuck Lichtman from Gary, Indiana, now lives in Florida, but originally had from the Midwest and had a very strong Midwest accent as well. And I think you'll hear a similar one on Daniel. So uh, where are you from, Daniel? I'm from the Chicago area. I live uh, in the suburbs north of Chicago along the North Shore. Wonderful. And so were you born there? Is that where you grew up your whole life? Yeah, uh, pretty much. I spent my whole life here. I, I actually didn't know there was such a thing as a Midwestern accent or a Chicago accent until I went to law school and somebody said, well, you have a very strong Chicago accent. And I said, well, there is no Chicago accent. What are you talking about? And uh, I said, don't I sound just like Tom Brokaw? And they said, you sound nothing like Tom Brokaw. <laughs> was that your goal early on to be the next Tom Brokaw? No, no, no. I went to law school right out of college practice law for until now. I mean, from I graduated in 1982 from the University of Chicago Law School and have been a practicing lawyer ever since. Just growing up, was your background filled with a lot of Jewish experiences? Did you do the whole Hebrew school thing? I mean, Highland Park now, I mean, the northern Chicago suburbs nowadays, I know is tons and tons of Jewish people there. Um, Was it like that when you were growing up? No, it, interestingly, I so I live in Highland Park now, which has a significant Jewish population, but I grew up in a different suburb, a bit, you know, five miles away, but culturally very different. It was not at all Jewish. And when we moved there, I was a child in the late 60s, mid 60s. And we moved into an area that was predominantly Gentile. And so my high school had very few Jewish kids in it. And I learned, not deliberately, but I learned by necessity what it was like to live and function in a world that where Jews were really a tiny, tiny minority of the 
the population. And uh, I thought that was very valuable. I, I, to this day, yeah, it's been a valuable cultural background for me. And then when I got married, we, we had kids. We moved to Island Park. My wife was really the driver behind that. I didn't have a particular awareness of all that. And I wasn't, I didn't have a preference, uh, but she did. And so we wound up in an area that, uh, as I said, has a substantial Jewish population. And culturally, it's, it's very comfortable for Jewish people. Did she grow up in Chicago as well, in, in, in a Jewish community? Yeah. She grew up in a, in a suburb that uh, everybody knows about, Skokie, sure. Illinois. Uh, which is, at the time, it was very Jewish. I don't know that it still is. I think there, there's been a cultural shift in Skokie over the last 20 years or so. Well, I can tell you that my son is there right now in sleepover camp, actually, in Skokie really? at the uh, oh. Hebrew Theological College or Skokie Yeshiva, or as they say in the Midwest, the Yeshiva. But uh, he's there right now as we as we speak. So uh, yeah. that's my Skokie connection at the moment. Yeah. She had a preference for something that culturally was similar to Skokie, that is a Jewish community that was more robust. And so we wound up in a Highland Park. Where did you end up going to college? What was kind of your trajectory after you got out of the house? I went to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and I was a political science major and did a semester working for Abner Mikva. He was a congressman. Mikva was his last name? Mikva. As in the ritual bath? Yes, as in the <laughs> ritual bath. He was really this illustrious guy. I mean, he, he was uh, on the law review at the University of Chicago as a student, and then he went to Congress, and then he was appointed by President Carter, I believe, to the bench, and he wound up being a very prominent federal judge, and then he was White House counsel for Bill Clinton. So he was a superstar kind of guy, and and he was I worked for him when I was a kid in his political life, and he was somebody who I sort of aspired to map my career around, or, you know, sort of in in that direction. But he was way smarter than I will ever be, and so I, you know, I've sort of done the best I can, but I haven't hit those heights. Well, when your name is Mikva, I mean, you've got a you've got a built-in advantage right there, you know, just a. A natural right, purity. Right. <laughs> right. He was sort of the the Jewish influence. We weren't we, we were sort of more of a secular family when I was growing up. So I I wasn't bar mitzvah, I was confirmed. I went to religious school for a long time. It had, we had a very Jewish experience that way. There is a there, a rabbi, my, the the rabbi who I interacted with as a boy was named Mark Shapiro. In fact, he just died about a year ago, who was a fabulous guy too. I mean, I've had a lot of good fortune in the mentors and the people I've been exposed to. He was a very thoughtful, very thoughtful guy. He was, again, in the late 60s when there was a lot of social turmoil. And you're younger than that, I can tell by by looking at you. But he was a guy who marched in Selma and had a very strong social conscience and brought that kind of relevance to the pulpit, to Judaism, and to me um, as he influenced me at, in religious school and in my confirmation class and and all of that. So it was, uh, I've never been a, um, a particularly observant Jew, but it has had a prominent place in my life nonetheless, but uh, in a less formal way, I guess. Never too late, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, part of what I what I deal with uh, in the book is the role that Judaism played uh, and religion played in helping me through that experience, which is, it was ironic because, I, I, as I said, it was not a big believer or observer or any of that. And, but I found Judaism through um, a, a different rabbi, Debbie Nesselton, who is here in Chicago, but she also has a broader portfolio than that. I think she's, she's pretty active. Um, and that was sort of a pivotal piece of how I addressed um, the circumstances that I found myself in. It was really quite important. And we'll get there shortly. But meanwhile, you were finished uh, at Illinois, I guess, and 
go go fighting Illini. Yeah. And then uh, you end up going to, to law school. It sounds out like out east. No, no. I went to the University of Chicago. I went to the University of Chicago. Okay, great. Before Obama was a professor, I'm guessing. Yes. Yeah, Obama is, uh, um, I think, four years younger. Than uh, younger than you, okay. Yeah, and unfortunately, I missed him. He came on board at the University of Chicago uh, after I had gone by by a fair number of years. Ago. I'm sure by a while. If he was yeah younger than you, and he was probably still uh, in, in Harvard and whatever he was. Right. So you went to you went to University of Chicago Law School, which is an excellent school. And what were you planning to do with your life? I guess going to big law was that kind of your vision, or did you have more of a political bent? Actually, that is what I did. But my vision, as I as I mentioned, my vision really was to get into politics and do something. The, the problem for me was that I had student loans at the time. I don't know if they still have. Yeah, that's always the problem. The people, the, you know, people are torn. They call it the golden handcuffs, right? Right, exactly. It's torn between their idealism and practicalities. Right, and so you know, there's also this track that you wind up getting on. You you do. If you're lucky, you do well in school, and so graduate school becomes available, so you go to graduate school. And then you do reasonably well in graduate school, or you go to a good law school. And then, particularly at the time, in the early 80s, there are a lot of jobs available, and they're paying well. And it's hard to walk away from that when you know, you've got to write a check every month to the government. So I started doing that. And if you're reasonably competent at what you're doing, you sort of get on that train and you ride that for a while. And, and then before you know it, you're a crotchety old man who never got into politics, which part of that describes me, at least. I, I never did quite get into politics. One of the things that Mark Shapiro said to me, and he was the rabbi who confirmed me, I remember my confirmation and I walked up uh, to receive the, whatever the certificate was and shake his hand. And it was at a Friday night service. And he said a little something to each person who was being confirmed. He said privately, just whispered in, in one's ear. And he said to me, I remember vividly, I was 16 at the time. And I remember it as, you know, I remember standing there. And he said to me, don't use it all for yourself. That stayed with me my whole life. And I think not by any grand design on my part, but just the way life has turned out. Writing this book is, I would like to think, a contribution to the community of people who are trying to figure out how to deal with adverse circumstances. And, and maybe it winds up being the way, you know, you can make donations and serve on boards and all that. But really the material moment when I can give something back to other human beings may be this. I mean, I'd like to think it's this. I'd like to think this book winds up being helpful. And, you know, politics obviously has its role. Although today, it, it seems like it's a more of a poisonous role than, than anything else. But obviously, you know, politics can make a change in people's lives. But it seems like sharing from your own heart and from your own, the depth of your own experience in a way that really can touch other people much more personally, maybe a much more powerful way of, of making an impact. I, I hope so. I mean, I, I hope that people can read this story. I, what I tried to do was be authentic and honest. And, you know, I, I it's 200 and some odd pages long. It's not a terribly long book. And it, it's a pretty quick read. So it's not everything that happened over a period of 15 years. And there are some things that are in there and some things that are not in there. But what I tried to do was include everything that I thought was necessary for the reader to understand both the experience and the choices that I was presented with and how I grappled with those choices. Because I, what I found was... Uh, as I was going through the experience, it was very difficult to find reference points. I had a very hard time understanding in an extreme situation what the moral thing is to do, what the the right and wrong of it is. And that actually is where religion came in, to my surprise. But I, I, I think because there was so little out there, and I and I did look. I mean, Joan Didion wrote a book that was a little helpful, and she got to some of this. 
but it's very hard to find sort of an honest assessment of what goes on in one's mind when you're confronted with choices that you have to make in a marriage, as a caretaker, as a person who is dependent upon, and at the same time, who is dealing with really extraordinarily difficult and painful medical issues, personal issues, personality issues, traumatic brain injury issues, all of that. And so what I tried to do is write it all down in a brutally honest way. And it is sort of brutally honest. I mean, one of the things that early on, I I gave the book in draft form to friends of mine to read, and they really liked it. But they said, you know, you understand that if you publish this, you're, you're not the hero of this book. And I said, I understand I'm not the hero of the book. I mean, I think people may read this book and conclude, I didn't do this particularly well. Other people may say, you did. That's not the point. The point is, here are the issues. Here is how you navigate through some of this or how I navigated through some of this. And maybe that's helpful to you. It sounds like it's very humanizing, which I think a lot of people appreciate. You know, we live in, in a world that everything is so stylized. Social media, for example, is curated and people's bests are always being put forward. And you know, people are very afraid to be authentically vulnerable. Um, and it sounds like you've done, you know, something very humanizing for people. I think so. I mean, that is the that is the feedback that I get. It's pretty raw. The words that I get back um, are remarkable from people who read it and, and as they think about it and respond to me, the, the words that they use are remarkably consistent. It's the same words over and over and over again. And it, it is that First of all, to brag for a moment, I mean, one thing that I hear all the time is that it's really beautifully written. I'd like to think that that's true. But the other thing that they say is um, that it's really raw, it's really honest, uh, and it's painful. You know, it's a view into um, a bit of a nightmare that I lived and uh, so did my kids and so did my wife at the time. She's now gone. And that other people are living and they're sort of, it's isolating because people, first of all, people don't all have this experience, um, but people do have difficult experiences. And it, but it, it's isolating too because people don't like bad news and they don't like pain and they don't like to be around. It. So it, it's a bit of a window, I hope, uh, into what that experience was. So since we've uh, already started kind of teasing out the book, let's let's step back and enter your life as a young lawyer uh, working, you know, I guess, downtown Chicago, big law, very sort of standard Jewish <laughs> tale, you know, and then I guess you got married at some point and, and started a family and then there was some change. So tell us what, what happened there. So I just, on that point, because I'll forget it. I, I am constantly amazed. And I say to my kids who are not grown that um, I have a, one of my sons just got into graduate school. He's going to go to business school. And I said to him, you know, it is a remarkable thing that my grandfather, his great-grandfather, my grandfather came to this country uh, in the 19-teens, I think, maybe early 20s, um, and had a little corner grocery store, little shack on the west side of Chicago, and raised my dad there and his brothers. He had no, nothing. He had no money, no power, no access. And in the space of my dad's life and my life and now my son's life, this country has allowed us to be at the very top. Or if, if you're not, it's because you didn't, you know, you didn't want it or you didn't try, but you had, those doors were all opened. And the idea that in a couple of generations from the Holocaust, a couple of generations from the teens and the twenties, the Jewish community can be this vibrant and have access to all the levers, I think is a, just a stunning thing. I mean, it's, it, I think it, it's so often taken for granted that, that that would be the case. And I, I think it, just for a moment to stop and look at where we are and reflect back on where we came from and how we got here and how much you, we all owe to this democracy, I, I, I don't want to lose sight of that. And, and I just think it bears a quick mention. Well, it's really relevant to the 
sort of contemporary debate around, you know, uh, race and politics that's going on nowadays when I think it's become fashionable to disavow, you know, the merits of, of the country and to sort of see the country through, uh, through much more cynical lenses, you know, as opposed to a view that says, look, it's not perfect, but it is a land of opportunity still. And through hard work and grit, determination, people can rise up and, and make something of themselves, which is interesting. I completely agree with you. And, and not only that, you know, you have these opportunities, the country and, and the sort of the social issues and social debate, it's worth fighting for. It's worth getting involved in. You're a step and a half away from the pogroms and, and you know, a, a brutal, almost constant, long history of the Jewish people. And we live in this idyllic circumstance. And, and you almost have a, a moral obligation, I think, to fight to preserve that and make sure it's sustained. And, you know, it's just sort of taken for granted and, and uh, too much, I think. Anyway, that's not a question you asked me. When I was in law school, Susan was my college girlfriend and sweetheart. And I went to law school. We, um, we married just before my last year of law school. We started uh, having children several years later. And we had uh, three kids. And then when we were 40, she was diagnosed with a cavernous angioma, which is, uh, I don't know what the detail is going to be all that interesting to anybody, but it's a, it's a mistake in the vascular system. And it creates the risk, and in, in her case, the reality of a hemorrhage. It's all about a location in your body. Her cavernous angioma was in a part of her brain, which is already bad news, but a part of her brain in particular that was inaccessible surgically. So she had a, a brain hemorrhage when she was 40 years old. Once that you have one hemorrhage, it's very likely with this disorder that you'll have another. And the first hemorrhage caused some difficulties for her, some impairments of movement and uh, some behavioral changes too, some depression, um, some fatigue, and but nothing that we couldn't you know, manage. Um, and then two years later, she had another hemorrhage that was really catastrophic. She was in uh, what lay people call a coma for uh, quite a number of weeks. She wound up in the hospital and rehab for four months altogether, a little over four months. And when she came home, um, she was hurt. She had lost most of the function on the left side of her body. She really couldn't speak very well. Her vision was impaired. And she healed incrementally over the first couple of years, but she never really made a tremendous amount of progress. And more importantly, the damage that was done to her brain was severe enough so that it impacted in a pretty profound way her personality and her mood and her, her spirit, you know, who she was. There was a lot of frontal lobe injury. At the time, the kids were 10, 8, and uh, 4. And I was a partner in a law firm downtown, and she was at home raising the kids. She had a career of her own that she stopped when um, she stepped out of when our first child was a year old, and she had intended to go back to work when our third child went to school. But she got sick when our third child was four years old. So he would have started school the next, or he did start school the next year. That's when she intended to go back to work, but that never happened. So from that point forward, um, we had nannies and caretakers, and and you know I had some help uh, raising the kids in terms of people who would come in and act as caretakers for the kids, and then we had other people who were helping me take care of uh, Susan. But it it was an arduous quite disappointing existence for everybody, uh, no one more than Susan herself. How aware was she of her own limitations? That's a perfect question. And um, 
it's very hard to give you an answer. When you have traumatic brain injury like this, and I can't speak more broadly than that, you actually lose the ability. And it took years for a very talented psychiatrist to explain this to me. You lose the ability to see yourself. That's one of the things that happens with traumatic brain injury. You, you lose the ability to be introspective and understand who you are and what your state of being is, which is, it's a very hard concept to get one's head around. And I, I've never actually succeeded fully. But Susan, for example, would say, I can do that. It's something that she clearly couldn't do. She did not understand what her limitations were because she really couldn't perceive them. And that is a function, the psychiatrist told me, when you have traumatic brain injury, the brain loses the ability to understand the damage to the brain. It's a weird concept, but I saw it play out. So the answer to your question is, I never knew really what she fully understood. Not everything. And in a way that would have been, I think, very skewed from reality. How did your life, obviously, it transformed? I imagine, you know, went from, first of all, working a very demanding job as a partner in a firm. Again, a pretty typical upper middle class existence with the children and sports, I'm sure, and all that kind of stuff. Right. What happened then sort of to the whole mechanics or the flow of your family life? And how did, how did your life look at that point? So to give you a context, uh, you know, bracket this in time. So this happened when we were, the first hemorrhage was when we were 40. Second hemorrhage when we were 42. We're the same. Susan and I are the same. And by the time we separated, um, it was 15 years later. It was a long time. How life looked from my point of view depends very much on when you're asking me the question. Early on, um, when she came home from uh, the Rehab Institute in Chicago, which is the best of its kind, literally is the best and it's ranked as the best. I mean, they're fabulous people. And when she came home from the Rehab Institute, I remember, even as I'm sitting here today, you know, many years later, it was an extremely intense period of time. I wouldn't even say it was depressing because depression feels different than that felt. That felt desperate. The beginning part of the experience, I think, was desperation and fear and figuring out the obligations that I had to meet in order for everybody to survive, and in the case of my kids, to thrive, I, I hoped. Um, and, and I think they did. Not I think, they did. There was a lot of energy applied to just getting through the day and the night and the next one and the next one after that and figuring it out as we went. And, uh, you know, family was enormously helpful. I had a wonderful support system. I have three siblings and uh, my dad was already, I had already passed on by that time, but my mom was still alive and, and, and is still alive. I, I had a very strong, very supportive group of friends. And so all that was just essential and helpful and, and necessary. As time went on, uh, you know, over a period of 15 years, it sort of normalized, it never got easy, never got pleasant, but it did get routine, except for the times when there was an emergency. And I suspect that anybody who's listening to this who has been in the role of a caretaker for a child or a parent or anybody understands that in his experience, those moments where something goes wrong, somebody falls. I mean, we spent a lot of time going to the emergency room, getting her stitched up for one thing or another. You know, that's part of that life too. I mean, people who are desperately ill that way don't live comfortable lives. They live uh, lives that are physically uncomfortable and punishing and things flow from that that are not good. And so you, you have to deal with that on an ongoing basis. And then ultimately, I would say to answer your question, by the end of the 15-year period, which is when she wound up 
in a living in a different place than I did, I had exceeded my capacity. I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't do what I was doing anymore. And so when my four-year-old uh, went off to college, I moved to a different, I moved to an apartment and um, Susan stayed in the house and I had caretakers for her. Ultimately, she wound up a few years later not being able to be in the house. She wound up in an assisted living facility and uh, eventually she passed away about a year ago. Sorry to hear that. It's very honest to acknowledge that at a certain point you couldn't couldn't do that anymore because that's something I imagine was a source of great anguish and conflict for you to be able to make that determination. I try to express in the book how much anguish it really did present and how much conflict it really did present. It is where religion actually popped up for me and was of considerable assistance. But when I say, as I'm talking to you, which is speaking publicly, that it exceeded my abilities, it's not a hard thing for me to say anymore because I've done it. But it's not an easy thing to admit, particularly for a loved one. And I think the listener, including me, listening to my own words, I think one is inclined to say, well, that's just weak, or that's lazy, or that is selfish, or... And I'm not making those judgments. I mean, other people can look at me and make whatever judgments they want. What I'm telling you is I didn't understand. I literally did not understand that there are limitations, that there would ever be limitations on what I was able to do because I wasn't raised that way. My mother always said to me, you can do whatever you want to do and you're a bright kid. And, and you know, I sort of, uh, I went to the University of Illinois with ambitions. And so I was at the top of my class and then I went to the University of Chicago Law School, which is a tough place and full of smart kids, way smarter than me. And that was a struggle. And then you've got to make your way. I mean, I was not a person who knew about limitations. I, I, was, I was lucky in a lot of ways. I was, I was born with resources and I had resources around me. So the idea of somebody saying, you know, you actually have limitations, I would immediately reject that proposition, except I lived it. And the fact is that after 15 years, I bumped into the limits of what I was able to do. And then all sorts of bad things start happening in terms of my own mental health, my own ability to live a life, my own ability to function as a lawyer, my own ability to sort of it, it, it's degrading of the whole human experience. And so then you get to a place where you say, I did anyway, can I live like this? Or if I continue doing this, will I be something other than what I was? And I think the answer for me got to be, if I continue doing this, I am not going to be who I was. It is corrosive enough of your personality, your spirit, you know, the things that make me human, that if I continued to commit to the life that I was in, would have changed me and vastly diminished my experience as a human being beyond what I had experienced for the 15 years prior, which was not all, was not fun, but, it, but I could do it. And I, and I, and I think I'm a fairly tough person. But after 15 years, the tough person was being destroyed. And, you know, tough was turning into ineffective. And it was turning into not a person I recognized, fearful, living in an emotional bunker. I mean, it was weird. It was, but real. And, um, you know, no amount of antidepressants, no amount of therapy didn't work. And because the, the reality was that I would come home every day or spend every day with somebody who I loved who was so desperately ill that they were living 
a horrendous existence, truly. I mean, Susan's existence was terrible. She was well cared for, you know, and she was in the room next to me. I mean, she, she was sitting there, but her brain had, and her person had been so altered. She had taken such punishment that she certainly wasn't who she was. And, you know, the whole thing winds up being just very challenging. Did you encounter a lot of judgment or derision from outsiders or even from your own children who couldn't understand that and who did level these sorts of uh, accusations of being selfish or those kinds of things? Or was it just patently obvious to the, even those, to those around you that something needed to change? Nobody has ever said to me, and I've never heard anybody whisper behind my back, anything derisive. My kids, I remember, you know, one of the breaking points for me was when my kids came to me and said, you can't do this anymore. You need to figure something out because we're watching this. And, you know, mom is where mom is, but you can't sort of spend your entire life being where you are. It's too, it's really hard for us, my kids, to watch. And it's not fair. I'm not suggesting that any of that is true or false. But in response to your question, how did my kids respond? That's how my kids responded. When I went to uh, Rabbi Nesselson and talked to her about this, and I said, you know, what do I do about this? I mean, I don't, and, and this is sort of a, Conceptually, this is a difficult part of this conversation, but the idea of going to family and friends and people who love me and saying, having a conversation, I never really trusted what I was hearing because I always thought they're being sympathetic to me and they're responding out of their own humanity. But what's really the truth? I mean, I don't want somebody to tell me what's going to be easiest for me. I want somebody to tell me what the right thing is to do because I'm finding myself in such a difficult circumstance that I don't trust my own sense of right and wrong anymore. I don't know. I don't know, you know, am I punishing myself? What am I doing? And if I asked my kids and my kids said, dad, you gotta like, you gotta figure something else out. You know, my thought was, well, they're kids. And they're, you know, they're, they're my children and they love me and they, they want something from me. But is that the, but what about Susan and what, you know, what, what do I do about that? And how do I do that? So I stopped trusting what I heard because it was favorable in a sense. I mean, you know, because people were saying like, figure something out and live a life. And I thought, well, you don't know what you're talking about. I mean, I'm married to this person and you know, this for better or for worse matters and means something and whatever. I mean, we didn't have a perfect marriage, but I, we loved each other. And, and I went to Rabbi Nesselson and I said, look, you represent thousands of years of thinking that don't depend on me. I don't want you to tell me as a human being what you'd like to see from me. What I want to hear is look into Judaism and tell me what the moral structure of this circumstance is and what is my obligation to Susan, to myself? What is the right? I didn't cover this chapter of right and wrong when I was growing up. There isn't this chapter of right and wrong. And she said to me, and she really struggled with it, and I've, and I've spoken to her recently, actually, and she said to me, there is nothing that expressly addresses this in Judaism except this. Judaism will always teach you to choose for life. And in your setting, you have to choose for life. It, you have to move to the next thing so that you live a life that doesn't destroy you. And that I found to be trustworthy because it didn't come from a friend who was concerned about me. It came from an emissary of 
thousands of years of thinking and learning. And I just, I, I thought that was just enormously valuable. That's fascinating. You know, I, I, a couple of insights are just what I'm hearing. What jumps out at me is, first of all, I, your reaction to your children and to those who cared about you, to me, is really, really fascinating because people are generally predisposed to heed favorable advice, that sort of confirmation bias effect right. of saying, well, yeah, that's what I want to do anyway, and I'm glad they're telling me that. It takes a real, I would say, a real truth seeker, you know, somebody who really has a, a desire to, to get to the bottom of something to be able to say, I actually am, I'm predisposed against what's easiest for me. Um, I, I think that's an unusual disposition, but it's one that you, you clearly had, um, which, which I think speaks to a very uh, deep and ingrained sense of intellectual honesty. And I don't know if that's something that was natural to you or something you developed over time, but it's an unusual way of, of approaching these kinds of dilemmas. Well, I, I think some of that, I mean, people say all sorts of derisive things about lawyers, but actually if you take law seriously and you, it, it requires intellectual honesty and it requires discipline. And I don't know where it comes from, where, where, what I did comes from. I think part of it is that it was such a, monumental set of decisions that I was making about my life, about Susan's life, that I would never be okay living the decision that I made if I didn't really believe that I had done my very best to understand what the moral thing was to do. And that sort of, I think, triggered my legal training in a way and sort of said to me, where are you going to get that answer? And that is why religion was sort of the only place to go, because it was the only thing that spoke to this that wasn't influenced by personal feelings toward me, which were unreliable and shade everything in my favor, unless I was talking to a, you know, an evil person, which I wasn't. That was the dilemma. That was the inquiry that I was trying to make. It was not easy, honestly. It was, it was sort of, you know, it was difficult. Well, that's the other insight that I had listening. So interesting that you intuitively understood or appreciated what you were getting, the inputs you were getting, perhaps were unreliable in the sense of they were so subjective, but that there was an objective source of moral clarity. And even though you hadn't grown up you know, by, by your self-disclosure, you know, a very religious person, but that you recognize that there could be a source of moral clarity of objective moral standards and that Judaism would be that source. That's a very interesting leap that you made. I mean, I certainly concur with it as a rabbi, but coming from where, where you were coming from, that wasn't necessarily a given. Why did you determine that that was your next step, that there must be an objective angle to this and that Judaism would be where I would find that? Because I always thought that I, I never found any of the adornments to religion to be particularly, I didn't have patience for them, the, you know, the going to temple and praying with a lot of other, and, and this is, look, everybody makes their own judgment about these things. And, and I never found that particularly useful or appealing to me, but the people I knew in my life who were attached to Judaism, people like Mark Shapiro from my boyhood, people like Debbie Nesselson from my adult life, they're serious people, they're serious thinkers, and they devote their life to thinking about humanity, morality, behavior, right and wrong. And so if I have people who are in the business of, you know, they're sort of my, from a lawyer's point of view, they're my expert witnesses on this subject. And so I go to my expert witnesses and I say, okay, look, I'm not an engineer, but I need to know why this building fell down. You can tell me. Well, this is like that for me. This was, look, I, I'm just, a regular person wandering around, doing my best, trying to get it right. But there are people who have actually devoted their lives to studying these things. 
and understanding. Now, I suppose about you know it would be interesting, and I've thought this before, but I've never had the sort of the courage to do it. I don't know what a priest would say to me. You know, I don't know what some other religion. I, I don't know what an imam would say to me about the same question, and that might have been interesting, but maybe not relevant to me. And so this was in my tradition. This is what I come from. These are my people. Whether, you know, I show up for Friday night services ever, which I don't, these are my roots, and this is what I chose to look to. Where else did Judaism enter into the equation throughout this whole journey as a caregiver and, you know, dealing with trauma and dealing with pain and dealing with these complex moral dilemmas and so forth? Were there other key moments? Were there other situations, you know, before this sort of crescendo, this this apex moment, were there other times earlier on that Judaism factored in? So Rabbi, I hate to, to disappoint uh, on this, but I, I think the answer is no. I think I, this popped up, you know, for me, and it just became obvious. This was the place to look at this at this moment. And, and that was the moment. And there wasn't a moment before. And honestly, there hasn't really been a moment since. Well, I was going to ask you, has that, has that impacted or influenced your approach to, or your, you know, your connection to Judaism in the time since? I, I think it has given me a perspective on the utility of religion. Look, when I was 17 years old, if you had asked me because I was an idiot and I was a kid, and you said to me, well, what good is religion? I would say none. I, I would say, you know, in the Bill Maher kind of view of the world, it's, it's more bad news than good news. What I think, you know, at my age, at this point in my life, what I think it says to me is it has a place. I mean, and it's a real place. I mean, it's, it's important. And is it important for every step of my life all the time? Is it a constant presence for me? It isn't, honestly. But in the most consequential moment of my life, yeah, it has a place there. And actually, it's interesting because as I age, I think it's going to come up again because I think there's another big question, which is how do you deal with, and partly it comes up because I saw it happen. I saw it with my dad. I saw it with Susan. How do you deal with death? And how do you think about that? I think religion will have things to tell me about that too. I think Judaism, I expect that that's going to be an important reference point for me. Now, maybe there are people, maybe you would say to me, look, if you really want to understand it, you can't just drop in from time to time. You got to live it. And that, I, I, unfortunately, I won't do. I mean, I know myself and I just said, you know, I just, I won't, I won't get there. Here in this moment, it really helped me. I, I think it was more than relevant. It was controlling. And in the next period of my life, when there's another moment of great consequence, which is how do you deal with the inevitable degradation of your physical self and the end of your life? I'm going to be interested to think about religion there and think about what it has to say. I mean, I guess the, the actual argument that I would make as a spokesperson <laughs> for Judaism would be not so much that you can't drop in. I mean, you could always drop in, but that there's tremendous utility. In other words, just like you discovered this powerful and really decisive impact when it came to this massive sort of macro decision, Judaism can have that clarifying power on a micro level as well, on a, on a, on a routinized basis also. There's the great utility is not limited to issues of life and death or issues of, you know, the biggest three decisions or inflection points, you know, of your, of your existence, but it actually can enrich immeasurably every moment of, of every day uh, if it's, you know, if it's, if it's welcomed into that space. So that's kind of how I would articulate it as, as a rabbi. Yeah. Well, I'll reflect on that, but I, I know who I am and I, <laughs> you know, your limitations. I get it. I get it. There you go. But even incremental changes that are, are meaningful. I want to pivot a little bit and understand some sort of the second order impact of things that have gone on. You know, I've read that your children, and I'm not sure your your degree of involvement, have become invested in brain research and and helping sort of, obviously, this is something that 
transform their lives, to invest in, in nonprofit, create a nonprofit in that regard. What, what are some of the things that have happened around, around that? That has been very interesting. So I, I spent many years doing charitable work, fundraising for the Brain Research Foundation, which is based in Chicago. Um, as my kids got a little bit older and became adults, they got involved in that. And now they're far more involved in it than I am. I mean, I, they founded the Young Leadership Board of the Brain Research Foundation and over a period of three years raised uh, in excess of a quarter of a million dollars for uh, the Brain Research Foundation, which does basic research on brain. The Brain Research Foundation invests in basic science, primarily early stage scientists who look promising but can't get NIH funding yet. And so uh, BRF funds those people to bridge them in their work until they can get National Institutes of Health funding. And it's been around for a long time. I think the organization is 70 years old. Uh, It's based in Chicago, but funds people nationally, scientists. And um, they do a lot of great work. Frankly, my involvement with them has sort of been waning over the last several years. But my kids have have sort of stepped in and then some uh, to make uh, the family contribution to that effort. That's wonderful that they've, uh, you know, taken that step to take on the legacy. Yeah. And it shouldn't, shouldn't all be on you. And, uh, you know, they can they can uh, pull their weight as well, the younger generation. Uh, I have one more question just about the whole experience that you, you went through, and then I want to get current and, and start to close. In terms of your role as a caregiver, you know, it's unusual, I think, I don't know how unusual, but certainly it's the minority of situations in which the male or the husband is the caregiver, is the well spouse. How did that affect you? Did you run up against, I mean, I don't know if you were involved in any support groups or or things of that nature for caregivers where you felt like you were in a minority and if sort of the, the genderized stereotypes of these situations, did that play a role in, in this whole process? You know, I, I actually don't think that it did because I was fortunate. I, I So at the time, the law firm that I was with, where I spent the you know twenty two years of my career, um, had no gender bias. They they knew that I was the caretaker. The fact that I was a man instead of a woman didn't matter to them. They were supportive. Period. Full stop. And so, you know, the expectation that as a man I wouldn't I would offload that to somebody else was uh, not part of my experience. Just because of the quality of the people that I worked with, which was. You know, it's the Goldberg Cone firm in Chicago. I will never be able to adequately thank them for the kind of support that they gave me over a long time. So I didn't have it there. I mean, I, I, you know, in the community, in the neighborhood that I see some of that a little bit, I mean, but not, I I never cared about that particularly. So um, you're right. The statistics are that it's uh, women are much more caretakers than men. But I suspect that's mostly because women step in to care for parents more often than men do. I think if you looked at just spousal caretaking, particularly if you further refined it and said spousal caretaking of relatively young people, um, hopefully that's a very small group. But you don't have a choice. You know, if I'm sure that men like me, who found themselves in a place where they had to be a caretaker for a female spouse, did what they had to do. And kind of bring us up to date nowadays, where has your life gone? Obviously, Susan passed away, um, although you were already in different places, but I'm sure that had you know, an impact. You know, what are you doing today sort of to honor her memory? And how have you, I don't want to use the word moved on because it, it smacks of callousness, but how have you uh, progressed in your in your life at this point? To honor her memory, we've done a couple of things. I actually made a, arrangements to have a plaque uh, placed at the Hebrew University in Israel, um, and I've gotten involved in some fundraising for them. Not, you know, enormous stuff, but meaningful to me. And so her name is now sitting in um, a garden on a plaque. And that's something. I mean, I, you know, it, mostly... 
Um, it, there isn't really a moving on. Uh, you're right about that. I mean, there it is. It's sort of an evolution. Um, and she's very much a presence for my kids and for me in my mind and my memory. Um, I am in another relationship. I have a fiance. We're getting married in. Oh, congratulations. Mazel tov. Very exciting. Thank you. It is exciting. And when is the wedding? Uh, where or when? When? October. The end of October. Okay. We'd like to invite the entire podcast audience. <laughs> I assume it's in Chicago. It is not. And now I'm not going to tell you where it is. Oh, so. no. <laughs> it even, sounds even better. It's a destination wedding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds even better. So it, it's going to be a small thing. Just my my kids and her kids. And uh, and we're, we're going to... Um, uh, we're going to get married. We've been together for several years. So it's a nice part of my life. She's a wonderful person. She's very patient with all of this, which you can imagine is not always easy for her. But she's, uh, you know, she's she's an extraordinary person in her own. Yeah, she was entered this relationship with this other presence in, in, the, in the atmosphere, so to speak. Yeah, and it, that can be a, a pretty substantial imposition on her from time to time. And uh, I love her and I appreciate that. And it tells you something about the kind of person she is, which is really very generous and very giving and um, lovely. And so I got lucky, honestly. There's a joke, just quickly. There's a guy walking down the street, walking his dog, and he bumps into somebody else, a friend of his, and he says, the friend says, well, he's walking down the street and his dog is just a mess. It's got three legs and it's got, you know, stitches over its eye. and and, you know, it's just banged up and mangy. And uh, his friend says, nice dog, what's his name? And the guy says, lucky. That's sort of uh, when I say I'm lucky, you know, you could you could say, well, maybe not so lucky because of the experience. But um, I feel incredibly lucky. And, you know, since I'm talking to a rabbi, maybe incredibly blessed. And uh, And that's all true. Beautiful. So I understand you're working on a second book. I am. I'm going to see if I can write something that's fiction. After you've bared your soul, you're ready for something a little uh, less close to home. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. So I'm, I'm at work on that. And um, the issues of the day that are on the table right now having to do with racial equity. And, and um, I think it's very hard to have an honest conversation about those issues. But I think through fiction, if it's done well, and maybe I can do it well, I think you can you can have an interesting conversation on the page about and a necessary conversation, I think, um, about those issues. And so that's what I'm going to attempt. When could we expect to uh, to see that on bookshelves or digital uh, devices? No, I'm not. I'm not that far along. Not that far along yet. Okay. No, I'll, I'll be in touch. Okay. Well, on the first book, where do where do people find it? And again, what's uh, what's it called again? And and, and so forth. The, the title of the book is The Thin Ledge, T-H-I-N, Ledge, L-E-D-G-E. And you can find it on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and, and um, other platforms. But the, the, for my purposes, the best place for you to find it is on Amazon because that's where the metrics wind up being measured. And, and that, that has benefits from, for not me economically, but in terms of the profile of the book. So if you're interested in getting it, and I hope people are, um, it's the Thin Ledge, Daniel Shapiro on Amazon. The Thin Ledge reminds me of the, you know, the Hasidic teaching that the whole world is a is a very narrow bridge. This sort of sense of that we're always in a precarious state, exactly, and uh, and can and can tumble. No, that, yeah. you're, that's interesting. I've never heard that, but that is exactly the idea of it, and it's it's how the book begins and that's that's precisely the point and it's also i should say because maybe it will encourage people to take a look at it it's also an amazon bestseller which is which is nice it's it's meeting with some i mean it's being well received and it's it's having some success that's fabulous and as you said you know talked about honoring susan's memory i might posit that perhaps this is perhaps the greatest way to honor her memory by sharing so much about how we navigate life among amidst difficulty and, and challenge. And um, she obviously, you said, maybe you weren't the, the hero of the story. Maybe she was the hero of the story, but she's there as the person who is the impetus for all this growth and all this change and all this generosity and all the kindness and, and everything. And ultimately the Jewish connection that emerged as well. So I think that's also a beautiful testament to her legacy. 
I hope so. Thank you. Well, Dan Shapiro, attorney, author, really someone who's, who's been incredibly vulnerable in giving this gift to the reading public. So thankful for that authenticity. And uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.